From the ISC, I am Lara Pedley and welcome to the ISC podcast, where I speak with inspiring insurance leaders about networking, mentorship and building a successful career in insurance. For today's episode, we're joined by Dame Inga Beale. Inga is a British business leader with over three decades of experience in global financial services. She was awarded a Damehood in the 2017 New Year Honours for services to the economy and for her contributions to driving the inclusion agenda for women and the LGBT community. Most recently, Inga led Lloyds of London, the 330-year-old global insurance and reinsurance market. As the first female chief executive of Lloyds, Inga also played a crucial role in advancing diversity and inclusion initiatives across the global insurance sector, including the Dive-In Festival, the only sector-wide diversity and inclusion festival in the world. As well as being a long-standing ISC member and ambassador, Inga is a patron of the Insuring Women's Futures campaign, led by the Chartered Insurance Institute, and a member of the London Mayor's Business Advisory Board. So Inga, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Good to be with you. Before we talk about your career and the journey that you've been on, can you tell us a bit about your story before you joined the insurance industry? Yeah, well, I grew up in a family environment in Newbury in Berkshire, uh, two siblings, an older brother and a younger sister. And I think I started to be a bit independent quite early on because my brother and sister both had this white blonde hair and I had dark hair. And they used to tell me I was adopted. So I think from quite an early age, I grew up to be a little bit independent and um, perhaps strong in a way. Um, Then when I got to be a teenager, I had a rather rebellious streak in me. So I wasn't very studious. Um, And at times, you know, I was sort of threatened with all sorts of you know, Saturday detentions and, you know, first girl to get the cane and things at school. And I used to brag about this. I used to think that was something great, um, and which then that backfired on me because they didn't want to make me a sort of martyr. But it wasn't, you know, I couldn't have been called um, a very, you know, studious student. Mm -hmm. And um, my rebellion continued because then I, I did go to university. I started a degree. But after about eight weeks, I decided that I didn't like it. And I, and I gave up my degree as well. Oh, really? So then I was sort of stuck there thinking, well, now what? <laughs> when I went out searching for a career. Okay. So you didn't, you didn't finish your degree? No. No, oh, I didn't. Okay. And what was your degree in, by, by, uh, just by curiosity? I was reading accountancy. I was very mathematical, so I'd got a maths A level and an accounting A level and an economics. So I was all always very into numbers and things. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll be an accountant. So I went to read accountancy. Mm. And so how did that job search go after you left university after seven weeks? Well, it was the, the time was very different. It was early 80s. Jobs were quite abundant at that time. I didn't have a CV. I don't think I even knew what a CV was in those days. And of course, it's quite different these days. I mean, even by the you know, the time you're a teenager, you're meant to have a CV and you're meant to show what, what you've done in your life already. So it was a very different time in the early 80s. And I went to a job center. And actually, I got interviews for two jobs. One was a trainee accountant and one was a trainee underwriter. I got offered both of those jobs. 
and chose the one in insurance as a trainee underwriter because they were just paying me a bit more money every year. The salary was higher. And that was the, the reason I chose it. Wow. At least you chose insurance. A lot of people say they fall into insurance. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. I'm not sure how, how well thought through my decision was, uh, but I certainly did choose that over accountancy. So after you joined the insurance industry, you spent about 10 years in the UK. You then went off to the US, Germany and Switzerland. Can you tell us a bit about that journey um, and why you moved different countries? Yeah, I worked for a big American company, GE, GE Insurance Solutions, as it was called then. Uh, It subsequently sold its business to Swiss Re, so it no longer is in existence. But I was fortunate enough to get a job there and they were very keen to progress women. I got offered my very, very, very first promotion by GE. And that was really because I was part of a target. Um, There were very few organizations in London at that time who would have perhaps, you know, made promotions of women in the London insurance market. So I was fortunate to get that opportunity. And they then offered me a job in the U.S., Uh, which I took, decided to leave the London market. I worked there for a few years, then they offered me a job back in Europe. I moved to France. Uh, They then offered me another job, um, and I moved to Germany. And then I got offered another job, but outside of GE, uh, to move to Switzerland. So I've had the fortune to get some great opportunities come along, Mm -hmm. but I've also, I suppose, had the courage to take those opportunities, Mm -hmm. and I have the flexibility and the ability to be able to move countries. Mm. So tell us a bit about when you were offered those those moves. What went through your mind and what made you say yes? Well, the first promotion I got, so before I was even moving countries, I said no because I was way too nervous. I didn't have the confidence to say yes to that. But because I was part of a target and GE was so keen to promote women and my, my manager's bonus was going to be negatively impacted if he didn't promote me, um, he made sure that I got all the support I need. He brought in a senior woman to become very much a sponsor for me, and she helped me gain in confidence. So I, I went and said yes to the job, and that was my first promotion. Then when the U.S. opportunity came along, that was quite a tough decision. I think I took the longest ever to make to say yes to that. I think I took two weeks. I, I do make uh, decisions quite quite quickly, but I took two weeks to make that decision. Because for me, I was going into a back office kind of role. I was leaving the front office, that frontline underwriting sort of broker negotiating role. And I thought, gosh, what would happen? This has been my life in London. And I don't really, I had never seen myself going into some back office role. But I took it. And I thought about, well, it's going to give me great exposure. It's going to give me exposure to all the senior people who were based in the U.S., And that's what it did. And so I had exposure to the most senior folk. And then when they offered me another job to go back to Europe, I was actually a bit disappointed because I felt my adventure was going to be over. I've been in the US for a couple of years and I I was really enjoying it. But I knew that for my career, it was a great opportunity because I was going to be back in the front line running a P&L again. Mm -hmm. And that was you know, what, what I wanted to do. And that's why I said, okay, I'll, I'll move back to Europe and, and run a P&L. But I have to say, each time I moved countries, there was always something that was scary about it. Uh, always, I mean, going into any new job is, and then particularly if you've got to 
put that together with learning about a new culture, setting up home in a new place, worrying about perhaps making new friends, things like that. Every time there was something in you that was nervous, but the excitement for me was always sort of outweighing the nervousness. Mm. And outside of your your family and, and close friends, who did you confide in or did you confide in anyone to help make those decisions? I did. The woman who was at GE, who was very senior at GE in the US, I always asked her for her advice and she gave me great advice. She advised me, for instance, when I felt that one of those opportunities was not as senior as I thought I should I should have as a role. Um, she said, look, things are only temporary. Something will change before too long. And she was absolutely right. I, Within 18 months, I got offered the, the bigger job that I thought I deserved in the first place. And so I had to have a little bit of patience, but it was well worth it. And I think the time that I waited was um, a real learning experience for me. You know, I, I learned a lot about managing global teams. I learned a lot about managing diverse teams. So it was actually very wise advice. And she continued to give me advice and I would always ask her. And I, I had another person who was not in the organization, but he was um, he'd become a very much a sort of mentor to me. He was a CEO of, a, of an insurer. And I would often ask him about advice and particularly he would give me an outside view of if I took a certain role, what would be the perception. And mm-hmm. so those two people were very, very helpful to me. And just touching on um, that uh, managing a global team, but also a diverse team uh, and moving across country, um, well, across the globe, did you, what helped you with that transition, uh, diving into the new culture, the new way of life? What, what helped at the time? Well, I was fortunate enough to work for an organization that moved a lot of people around the world and they provided excellent cultural training. And believe it or not, you should take that. When I moved to the US, I thought the US culture would be very similar to the UK, just because of the language, I guess. Mm. Very, very different culture, Mm. very, very different work culture, very, very different sort of social culture. And that cultural training is very, very helpful for you to understand what it's like in a workplace where you've got different expectations and different sort of unwritten rules. So that's very, very helpful. The other thing is um, I was very keen to mix with the locals whenever I moved anywhere. So I did not reach out to the expat community. Mm. I didn't, um, when I was living in Paris, it was a huge British sort of community living in a certain uh, arrondissement in Paris. And I chose specifically not to get involved with them because I wanted to learn more and settle into the local culture. So I sought out through networks um, at work, really, got introductions to people who lived near me who were locals, not people from the expat community. Mm. Um, and you mentioned that you went, uh, when you moved to the US, you went into a more back-end role. As you were no longer uh, front office and meeting people, how did you develop your networks, especially in those new locations um, outside of your organization? Yeah, I think I didn't really do so much networking outside of the organization at that time, actually. That was because I was I was setting up a new function, which was you know, sort of internal risk management function. Um, and so it was. I was focused very much on building my internal network rather than reaching out. Mm. But because I'd had 
so many years of building an external network. For me at that time, the internal network was almost more important for my career. And then it wasn't until I got back into a P&L role in Europe that I then started to focus again on my external network. Mm. And I think that that might happen. And you know, that is okay at times. Your career will go through all different phases and stages. And at times, the internal network might be the one you need to work on more than the external one. Mm. Well, we all have uh, such limited amount of time. So you, you need to prioritize your networking uh, and thinking about which network to invest in, I think is really crucial. Mm. Great. So can we talk a bit about, uh, you started as an underwriter and then in 2006, you became a group CEO. Tell us about that transition. Well, that was a really scary transition. Although if I'd known how much I didn't know, I probably wouldn't have taken the job. I was, by that time, I was um, in Germany and I was running EMEA, Europe, Middle East and Africa for GE Insurance Solutions. So I had a big role, but it was within a big organization. It wasn't a CEO of a publicly listed company. If I had known the exposure you get as a CEO of a PLC, if I'd understood the, the amount of time you have to spend with other stakeholder groups, because I'd basically been focusing on customers and employees up until then, suddenly you're at the head of a, of a publicly listed company, you've got other stakeholders to think about, you've got big time shareholder considerations to think about, you've got regulators that you need to spend time with you've got rating agencies that you need to spend time with the media you need to spend time with so my world exploded if you like into having to deal with a huge amount of stakeholder that I'd never really had to deal with before and as I said looking back I sort of think gosh if I'd known what I was getting into I probably wouldn't have taken the job fortunately I was so naive I took it and I saw it as an exciting opportunity but it was a huge learning curve I mean, it was such a steep learning curve for me, really being thrown into the public eye in Switzerland. And it started even before I started in my role, because when the news broke, I was going to be the first female to ever run a financial services company in Switzerland, well, at least a publicly listed one. So I was making headlines in more ways than one. Mm. Um, they They thought I was quite young, so that got a lot of noise. And I was also British and I was moving in to run a Swiss company. Mm. So there were several reasons why I, I got a lot of media attention and I wasn't really prepared for that. But when I arrived, I decided to just go in in my own way, my own style, uh, stick to what I believe in terms of respecting everybody, being open and transparent, uh, communicating, communicating, communicating and listening, listening, listening. And that was how I approached everything. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned just then you were thrown into the public eye. You do a lot of public speaking. Have you always been confident to put your voice out there um, and talk openly to l- large audiences? Not at all. If I go back to my school days, we always put on a play once a year. I would only ever part- participate in that if I had a some sort of non-speaking part. I did not want to be one of the, the, the you know the actors on the stage. Uh, with a big part. So I really did not have confidence. And even my very, very first public speaking engagement, which was at a 
conference where people were paying to hear the speakers. This wasn't until the mid-90s. And even then I was thinking, well, I know I've got this speech to do, but I used to play rugby then. I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll have a serious rugby injury, so I won't actually have to do the speech. And, the, you know, it got closer and closer, and I was nervous, and I practiced day and night my speech. I was so nervous. But I got some good feedback after that first session. And the more, of course, you do it, the more practice you get, the more confident you get about it. But, no, you can be amazed with yourself what you can learn and what, what fears you can overcome. And then you look back and you go, gosh, I don't recognize that younger Inga. I, I, can't, I can't imagine being so nervous about doing something. And that's what's wonderful about life. Just mm. keep looking. There's a theme here. You'll keep throwing yourself in the deep, deep end um, and coming <laughs> yes. out the other end. <laughs> um, and with that confidence, also you've had to build a lot of resilience. Can you tell us a bit about that um, and your journey uh, in insurance? I didn't really think about when I started work about having some ambitious career. I didn't really, I wasn't really ambitious at all. In fact, I just did sport. So I did loads and loads of sport when I was young. And that was the most important thing for me. I can remember starting working in the city of London and all I wanted to do was to leave early enough to go down to the river to practice with my rowing crew. And I work was just almost incidental. So I didn't start out being very ambitious and I didn't think about having to be resilient. But over the years, I got into situations where I just had to be resilient. And when you become a leader, you are always thinking about the other people. You're always thinking about everyone but yourself. And you don't want to let people down. So even in the most tough situations, and the toughest I think I ever faced was at Converium, which is the Swiss reinsurance company that was subject to a hostile bid by a French company, SCORE. And it was such a shock. And the the whole board, all of the employees, everybody globally was really shocked because it had been the first hostile bid in the reinsurance community. So it was was making news in all sorts of ways. Mm. Um, And I had to be really resilient as the CEO of that organization. Everybody relied on you to be strong, to show leadership, And somehow I found it in me to do that and to be that strong person trying to give everybody hope um, and to be positive about the future. Don't quite know where it came from, but it was a real learning for me. And every time we go through something that's very tough, um, we learn something and we get stronger. And, And that's what I found. And now it takes a lot, a lot to knock me back. So what advice would you give to someone that's currently trying to be resilient in their career? Lean on others. It's been the most helpful thing. And when the Insurance Supper Club was formed some 11 11 years ago now, I didn't realize the benefit I would get out of it. But we built such trust between us. Everyone was so supportive. And whatever your support network is, whatever group of people, friends, family, whoever they are, mental sponsors, lean on them. It's through that support network that I have the courage to go on and do the next scary thing. It's been incredibly helpful to me and I would encourage everybody to build up whatever network you want or networks. Indeed, use multiple networks. Mm. Well, talking about being a change agent, whilst you were at Lloyd's, 
um, you got given you were awarded a damehood in 2017 for your services to the economy but you also um you were involved in diving and the release of lloyd's lab can you tell us a bit about those um those initiatives um and how you made them help to make them happen well arriving at lloyd's there were a few women there were already some women um that i was talking to such as barbara mary and Charlotte Myers, and we were saying we've got to do something about the lack of diversity in the Lloyds market. Dive In was launched eventually in 2015, and it, it was much broader than just the Lloyds market. We thought we had to do something for insurance in general. And Lloyds was very much the centre of making that first festival happen. But after the first festival, which was basically days within one week, just in London, around talking about issues about inclusion, um, a lot about gender and lack of senior women, but we also touched on the LGBT community. We touched on race and ethnicity issues that we were facing with and all sorts of other cultural things. What we discovered was a real need to have a conversation about it. It sort of unleashed uh, a desire from thousands of people to say, we've got to have these conversations. And so the next year, I insisted that we went global, even though I know the inclusion at Lloyd's team came to me and said, we don't have the capacity to go, go to go global. I said, you've got to go global. And I remember having a really good conversation with Dominic Christian, who, who we'd asked to head up inclusion at Lloyd's to say, you've got to go global. And it was, of course, the right thing to do. And this year, 2019, we had the fifth birthday. It's gone more global than ever. We've had sessions in over 30 countries, over 60 cities across the world. It's been absolutely amazing and thousands and thousands of people have been involved. Um, and it's what I love about it is it's showing that we, what the power of collaboration if you do things mm. collectively. So that's been an absolute amazing part of really moving the insurance sector forward to be a modern, dynamic, inclusive place. Uh, the Lloyd's Lab was more about bringing innovation to the heart of the Lloyd's market. Lloyd's has always been one of those pioneering places where they've insured the latest risks and they've done the most amazing insurances. But I wanted to make sure that we were continuing to be seen as a leader of innovation because the world has changed a lot in 330 years and there is innovation happening in many other parts of the world now. London doesn't have and Lloyd's doesn't have its uniqueness and I wanted to make sure that Lloyd's was still going to be very much at the heart of innovation so we launched the lab very sort of agile environment um, trying to knock down bureaucracy trying to get young minds new minds to come into the market and bring their creativity and innovation to the market so a very important part of the Lloyd's culture that we needed to make sure again was modernized mm. oh it's fantastic and it's great to see those conversations both in the Lloyd's lab and dive in happening all around the world now especially with dive in we've had a number of podcasts from around the world during the dive in festival and um, we all have it at different stages in our journey so coming together and sharing those experiences is only going to help make us accelerate um quicker move forward quicker. Absolutely. yeah absolutely so looking back at, at your journey, um, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you've been faced with um, and how did you overcome that challenge? Well, I've, I've had two real challenges. One, and neither of them particularly 
because I'm a woman, I mean, they're just leadership challenges. One was the hostile takeover of Converium, where Score mm. came in and, and put this hostile bid on Converium. And that was an incredibly challenging time because the company, we wanted to stay independent. And we fought mm. and fought for months to stay independent. In the end, we couldn't. Um, so that, you know, we, we decided that we would sell to Score. And um, the second time was really the Lloyd's modernization. And the way I approached both of those was to include as many people as possible. You can't do this sort of, you can't do it on your own. You need to rely on other people. When I arrived at Lloyd's and looked at the failures of the past, the failures to modernize, I realized that we needed to do it completely differently. You couldn't force change through. You needed to include people on the journey. And I hired Shireen Khoury-Hack, who came in and said, we've got to bring all of the non-believers with us. And we've got to bring organizations that Lloyd's had somehow alienated to, to play in the same sandpit as us. We needed to work on it together. And I think this is really the modern ethos for any business is the collaboration is going to be valid that sort of approach is going to be valid for anyone who wants to run a business these days. You cannot do these things in a silo. Technology is connecting us like we've never been connected before. And we need to use all these, you know, these ecosystems that are being built. We need to use all of them, lean on them and collectively move forward. Mm. I completely agree. And and you mentioned earlier on that uh, when uh, taking those promotions you leaned on two people um i assume as your careers went on you brought in and um found support in in other individuals uh, and we talk a lot about finding uh, mentors and sponsors uh, to help us progress in our career what advice would you give to someone uh, looking for for mentors and sponsors that are finding it a bit challenging uh, and don't really know where to start with that support it's tough to find people who have enough time to dedicate themselves. And particularly if you're after a senior woman, there are not so many of them around. But I would encourage people to think much more broadly about who can help them. Anyone can be a mentor to anyone else. They don't have to be more senior. In fact, some of the amazing mentors to me have been reverse mentors I've learned a lot from keeping in touch with the younger generation, learning from them. We learn from everyone. So I would encourage people not to think in hierarchical terms about um, when they're looking for somebody to mentor them. You can find it in all sorts of places. Just somebody who's inspiring you in some way can be a fantastic mentor. Mm. For sponsors, it's a little bit different because sponsors have to be able to open doors, create opportunities for you. They need to already be connected to networks that you're not connected with. And that means a slightly different approach to sponsors. Um, Hopefully, more and more employers these days are providing sponsorship and mentoring schemes. I know that you can. there are all sorts of other networks that are out there Um, offering these sorts of things so you've just got to seek them out I guess perhaps the insurance supper club is one of those places um, a great networking opportunity to find other people who are willing to help you and also don't try and think of mentoring as being 
such a formal program. It can be just having a coffee with someone, having a chat, running an idea past somebody, um, getting people's views on, on dilemmas that you might be faced with at any time. Mm. And so the, the conversation I'm having at the moment is also about, is also about um, how to be a good sponsor yourself. Uh, because we're all sponsors in our own ways. Is there any advice you'd give to someone looking to sponsor someone else or or um, trying to be a better sponsor? Well, one of the things is that what worked for you doesn't always work for the other person. And I think it's important to try and get the person that you're sponsoring to come up with a lot of the ideas that are right for them because they know more about their life and what what's missing or what they want than you actually ever do. Mm. But as a sponsor, it's your duty, it's part of the role to create opportunities and open doors for people. So listening to your sponsee, I don't know, that's probably not a, a noun actually, <laughs> is it? The person you're sponsoring, um, listening to them about what they want and then thinking about how your networks can be used to open doors for them, that, that's really the best thing to do. Mm. Great advice. So you're now moving into a uh, non-exec director portfolio from being the CEO of Lloyd's. Can you tell us a bit about that transition and what you've done maybe to help the transition? It's a difficult transition because you're moving from being on call to an employer almost all the time, whenever, mm. particularly as the CEO, to suddenly having the flexibility to, to design your own calendar. And that takes some adjustment. You need to allow yourself time just to experience that freedom it gives you. But then you also want to make sure you've got enough purpose in your life. So as you're piecing together your portfolio, you've got to think about, well, what do I get satisfaction with? What am I prepared to give for free? What do I want to be involved with and drive? What passions do I have? And then for the paid assignments, you want to be able to obviously contribute with your experience and add something, but you don't want to stop that learning. So personally for me, I'm looking to take roles in areas that I haven't been involved with before, um, as well as those where I feel my experience can actually really add something. So maybe it's a startup, give some advice about um, navigating through insurance, opening up some doors, using my contact list perhaps to connect other people. So what I'm looking for is a real variety. I think that's the, the name of the game here, um, to really have variety, keep my interest level up and, um, and enjoy myself. Mm. And one of those things that you, you give your time to is the Ensuring Women's Futures program. You're currently the patron for it. Can you tell us a bit about Ensuring Women's Futures? Yeah, well, this was the brainchild of Jane Portis and Sean Fisher. Jane, who now works at PwC, and Sean, who's the CEO of the Chartered Insurance Institute. And they came to me saying, we've got an issue, Inga. Um, we've got this real lack of equality in the UK as regards the financial independence for women versus men. When I started to hear some of the anecdotal um, you know, the stories about um, situations that women found themselves in, I was really quite shocked and didn't expect it here in the UK. Then, so I said, oh, yes, I definitely want to be part of this. 
And then they started to gather all the evidence, look at all the look at all the data that was out there. And there were some startling statistics. We know that when women and men reach retirement age at 65, the pension wealth of a man is five times that of a woman on average in the UK. That is shocking. Then when you go to the start of a woman's career, even when people start in apprenticeships, men, the male apprentices are being paid 21% on average more than the women. So this is shocking stuff and it happens early on in life. And and there are all these, these six moments that matter that we've identified where there are critical decisions or things that happen to women where the, the gap just gets bigger and bigger. And it might be a caring responsibility you have. It might be some other family responsibility. It might be a career decision, a divorce. It could be any number of things. But each time these things happen, the woman, the gap gets bigger between the man and the woman. And that's what we're trying to close. It's been an amazing program of work, uh, years of research, years of activity, years of planning what actions we're going to take. And in November 2019, we're going to be launching those action plans. It's going to be a whole, a vast network of companies, government bodies, um, consumer associations, charities, um, industry associations, insurers. We need a whole host of people to actually say, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to make a difference. We're going to have policy changes. I'm going to change my products, whatever it is. We're going to help the financial um, advisory uh, population, which is predominantly men, have conversations with women about their financial security and their financial futures. And hopefully we'll be giving uh, financial independence or greater financial independence to a lot more women. It's fantastic. So how can everyone that's listening get involved today? We want people to have a conversation. We've got a campaign to talk to 10,000. You can hold groups, um, small groups, gather a bunch of people together. There's a whole toolkit that you can access on the Ensuring Women's Futures website. Uh, We want you to have conversations and get lots of circles working together because we want at least 10,000 people to hear what they can do and how they can get involved with making a difference. Great. Well, we'll pop all the information about ensuring women's futures in the description as well. Great. So, looking back on your career, you said that um, at the beginning you were more focused on on your sports. When you look at success when you started your career compared to now, how does it differ? I didn't really think about my career when I started. I didn't have a vision of what success would look like. When I was working in the city of London in the 80s, and I worked in Lime Street, which is where Lloyd's is, Lloyd's of London was the most scary place for that young woman. I didn't even want to set foot in the building. It seemed um, just so unwelcoming. To think then later on, many years later, I would be the CEO of Lloyd's, somehow I can't Even now, I can't even get my head around it properly. It's it's quite extraordinary, that journey. Um, I think, though, success is is not really about... There is a personal element to what success is for me, but it's about thinking about what I've done for others. 
how I might have changed people's lives, how I've seen other people develop, how I've seen people create things, how I've seen people do more than they ever imagined they could do. And that's the wonder of being able to lead people and inspire people and motivate people. And that, to me, is the most satisfying feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of goes way beyond a job title or where you, where you fit in the hierarchy to think that you might have empowered others, empowered women particularly, to think more boldly and do something um, more ambitious. That to me is the, is the most, the most satisfying thing. And I suppose the thing I can think of that I might've had a, had a bit of success in. Mm. So if you had one piece of advice, a do and a don't for someone that's either considering a career in insurance or, or already started their journey um, in insurance, what would they be? My do would be open to learning and taking the most scariest opportunities. So don't stay in your comfort zone. I suppose that's a don't as well. But really look for those scary opportunities throughout your career. Um, My don't is don't be too worried about planning out your career. Your life will emerge for you. Each decade I've been on this earth, it's got, my life has got richer and richer Um, There have been some really tough times, but none of it I regret. And I would say don't ever go through life regretting anything you've done because it just adds to the, um, the enrichment of your life. Well, thank you so much, Inga, for joining us and sharing your story. Thank you. You've been listening to the ISC podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. You can get more information about the ISC at www.theinsurancesupperclub.com. Our show is produced by Connor Sweetman of Breakthrough Media. I'm Lara Pedley. See you next time.